Zoom will start forward. Okay. All right, so uh, my talk is on uh, uh, joint diseases, and um, I'm going to cover both two chapters in uh, the Harwood Nest, uh, the uh, monoarticular arthritis, which is uh, disease to one joint, obviously, and polyarticular, which is two or more. This work? I think I got it down. So obviously, and there's another term, oligoarthritis, you know, you may see. That's kind of like a polyarthritis. There's a little bit of overlap. Um, but we're pretty much classifying this lecture into two, monoarthritis and polyarthritis. So uh, the first one that I think everybody needs to know about is uh, monoarthritis is uh, gonococcal arthritis. Who's ever seen this? One. I, I may have seen it once. I don't know. Uh, it's... Uh, you know, it's read about, in, it's, it's in every textbook, and it's listed as the most common cause of septic arthritis in what population? Sexually active? Men or women? And uh, what age group? 20s, yeah, young. So young, healthy, sexually active. So actually women uh, are more likely to get uh, um, uh, gonococcal arthritis. And then, um, and how about pregnancy? Protective or not protective? It's actually not protective. Uh, so when, when you're pregnant or you're in the perimenstrual period, you know, you're talking about rare disease now, so it's not like, you know, all pregnant women are going to get this. It's, very, it's extremely rare to begin with. But uh, the um, pregnancy is, is, is uh, puts you at a little higher risk to get this, and so does your perimenstrual period. And so... The gonococcal arthritis can show up in two different ways. Uh, about uh, half people show up with the, the, the uh, typical joint gets inflamed and uh, hot, red knee type of thing happen in the knee, wrist, or ankle. And the second type is, uh, uh, is this arthritis dermatitis syndrome. I think this is more of the classic picture where you get the tenosynovitis and, and sort of a migratory polyarthritis, and then it gets, then it'll end up maybe getting into one joint specifically. Um, um, you know, I think either way is something that in the young person you really have to, you know, have a high suspicion for because I think the, the presentations aren't going to be, you know, necessarily uh, as classic as like, you know, a staph aureus knee infection. So in looking at the, the skin, in, uh, uh, I think this is real important. You really have to have a high suspicion. You have to do a really good physical exam uh, to look for, you know, types of hematogenous spread for uh, disseminated gonococcal infection. And if you look at figure A, you can see like in the finger there, look at a little black dot there, little petechiae, a uh, little hemorrhage gene going on. So that's, that's disseminated gonococcal infection. And that's early on. And then later it's going to progress on, and you're going to get um, um, maybe a little fluctuance and a little bit of uh, scaling. And then in number C, a little later on, you're getting some surrounding cellulitis. And then you get some blistering. And in the center of that blister, there's a little necrotic center 
That's kind of like a hallmark of the gonococcal, disseminated uh, gonococcal infection. And so as is E, and it's starting, you know, getting maybe a little resolution, and uh, another still a black dot, and then in F, you know, it's still sort of lingering around. So, I would, I would, I would think they're they're contagious. Yeah. So, so this uh, extensor tenosynovitis, we did have a case when I first started here. A student was sent in from uh, uh, student health, and he was having, uh, you know, this uh, uh, tenosynovitis, and you know, he denied any sexual activity at all, and and it was it was you know it was like what do we do next? But you know, I think they had a high suspicion, so we did culture every uh, part of his body and gave him antibiotics. Um, but the because uh, his presenting symptom was was tenosynovitis. And so that young person, again, you need to really raise your suspicion of this gonococcal infection. Uh, fevers can be absent. Uh, you know, this is, uh, this is a bug that, uh, you know, um, uh, is easy to kill and may not generate a big febrile response. And the general symptoms may be absent. And so, uh, I mean, we've all seen gonorrhea before, right? And most people present with, what, trippy penis? I mean... <laughs> It's, I mean, quite a bit. I mean, the cases I've seen before, I mean, it's like uh, Niagara Falls. And, uh, but, you know, some, some symptoms may be absent. And, 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 uh, and so you think about this, uh, how does this happen? And, and, and how does it get into a joint without having all this penile discharge? It's because some people don't, you know, you know women and men. And so, uh, uh, so that is not a reliable historical question. Um, so... Uh, um, and I'll get into some treatment of this a little bit later. I'm going to cover uh, one of the other, a uh, couple other pathologies here, and then we'll get into some ED evaluations and treatment. So the next one is the non-gonococcal septic arthritis. And I think we're all doing sort of fellowships in this because uh, we see all these prosthetic uh, uh, joint infections, right? I mean, it's quite common uh, into our high-volume orthopedic uh, um, uh, caseload here. And so, you know, we've all seen plenty of those. But it also happens in, in a bunch of other subgroups, right? So IV drug abusers uh, is, is a big one. And those can go into weird joints, you know, your sternum, SI joint, clavicle. And so, uh, you know, taking your social history is going to be really important there. Uh, but typically, it'll, it'll affect large weight-bearing joints. And it can be spread in a whole variety of ways. You know, from the blood, patients that have indwelling catheters, uh, recent surgeries, have had a distal infection, those could seed. Uh, continuous spread. Um, and this again is uh, you know in the right in the right patient population, the diabetic foot person, the, the infection that's you know has the on the surface and the skin, and it starts seeding down deep, maybe causing osteomyelitis, maybe going into a joint, and then direct trauma, if you fight bite, which we're what we're really familiar with, and putting people on a box to prevent that when they come into the ER, and of course the recent surgeries. Uh, and then the risk factors are are are. Um, are um, pretty self-explanatory. I think one, one, one to note is this intraarticular steroid injection. Uh, it's one of those things that, who's done those in the ER, intraarticular steroid injections? Yeah, and so, yeah, so, you know, I, I just think it's one, you know, it's one of those things that we, you know, we, we do this, but, you know, if you're, you have to be a little bit careful about injecting steroids into a joint and, uh, um, you know, if the history, you know, I'm still, if I'm taking fluid out of a joint, I'm sending it for cramp stain, I'm sending it for culture, okay? Uh, it's, uh, I don't think there's any harm in, in, in injecting steroids. 
think the the problem is if you go in and you know think it's uh, um, rheumatological flare or something, some joint flare where they they have this chronic problem and they come into the ER and you're going and injecting with steroids and not do the cultures, not do labs, you're going to miss something. So I think that, that's one of the good teaching points I'll have later in another slide. And another thing to note is that people have gout. If you have a prosthetic uh, um, um, you know, hip replacement or knee replacement, chances of getting gout in that joint is extremely, extremely rare. So uh, don't think you can, that's not really a possibility. So the bugs, uh, Staph aureus, again, the most common, both, you know, regular staph and MRSA. Uh, Strep pneumonia is the second most common. And then pseudomonas uh, for the, those that are IV uh, drug abusers and immune compromised. And then people that have the mixed flora, fight bite type thing, they can get some odd infections there. Interesting enough, I had a nice conversation with uh, Dr. Clark in uh, uh, orthopedic surgery. And he was telling me that one of his big screening things is a dental exam now because uh, he just looks, if, if people have just rotten teeth, he won't do joint replacements on them until they get their teeth fixed because the risk of infection is too, too large. And then uh, the uh, crystal-induced monoarthropathies. Um, uh, gout, pseudogout, uh, kind of overlap in present, presenting symptoms. I think you know, gout is much more common, though. These patients may have a fever. So it's a very similar picture to septic arthritis in their initial presentation. Uh, the typical history is middle-aged man. You know, he's got severe pain. He's been drinking a lot of red wine. And uh, it comes in with uh, severe, you know, redness, warmth, pain, swelling. Uh, in the MTP, it happens 60% uh, um, um, of the time. What's that called when it, when it goes there, the first MTP? Podegra. Yeah. Anyone know how I got that name? Me either. <laughs> so, uh, I think I actually had an attack on gout once about six months ago, a year ago. I don't know. I had a bunch of red wine laying around the house. Maybe it was after a CPC party. And I was thinking, oh, let's have a couple glasses of wine each night and reduce my cholesterol. HDLs finishes wine off. And then, uh, and then one day I just started, you know, woke up in the morning and I just couldn't walk. Like I sprained my ankle and, and it just hurt like Dickens. And, uh, I'm like, what is this? You know, I went for a run yesterday. I was totally fine. I ran like five miles. Why, why is my ankle hurting? And then uh, uh, I took some Motrin and went out, and it was like totally gone the next day. And I, I think it was like a mild gout attack. Anyways, I don't, I don't drink uh, much red wine anymore, except at the CPC, not afterwards. <laughs> um, and so uh, the problem with gout, you know, gout is, 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 uh, is, a, is a chronic disease too. And, uh, you know, for me, I think it was an isolated case. But there are a lot of people that have these recurrent attacks and everything else. So early treatment is really important. And if you don't, you can get chronic changes and you get these tophaceous deposits. I think you've probably all seen in medical school um, in those pictures. Um, and then, uh, you know, gout precipitants. So we mentioned red wine, uh, increased uh, purine uh, intake. Those people on chemo, they got a lot of cell breakdown, so they got a lot of... Uh, Uric acid levels may be high, uh, alcohol, and, and, and trauma. But there's atypical presentations, too, of gout. And these are uh, old men, postmenopausal women, those that are on diuretics and, and have renal insufficiency. So they're, they're at a higher risk. You know, they're not clearing this uric acid out. And, and these may not affect their big joints. They couldn't affect their small joints in the hands and feet. So something to, to think about in your differential for the uh, atypical presentation. And then pseudogout. Um, this is uh, um, 
you know, I think I made his diagnosis once in the ED. Uh, you know, the room fellow came in and looked at the, the uh, uh, crystals for us under the microscope, and, and our, this is our diagnosis. This is pretty, pretty much an old, you know, people have, are older that get this, and it's kind of an acute attack. You may see, uh, um, you, know, you may find it on an x-ray that someone has, like, pseudogout, but it's asymptomatic. They may, they may have some sort of stippling appearance in their joint. Uh, it's kind of like a progressive DJD. Um, so not too much different osteoarthritis. And uh, so you're looking at, you know, same thing as gout, bigger joints, knees, wrists, ankles, elbows. And uh, this kind of kind of comes on over days. Uh, it doesn't really happen, show up right away usually. So people will come into the ER and say, you know, this joint's been aching for 10 days. So not the best history for, like, septic arthritis. Some things to worry about are um, hypoparathyroidism, hemochromatosis. There is a small association. Um, you know, I think the, the importance there is that pa these patients may need some follow-up. So, you know, covering like the three big diseases, gout, uh, gonococcal arthritis, and uh, staph, uh, you know, non-gonococcal arthritis, there are a bunch of other causes for joint disease. You know, Dr. House covered the avascular necrosis type, and, uh, you know, we obviously know, know of trauma, uh, neoplastic, there are different cancers that can show up in the joints. And there are some systemic diseases that cause joint problems, too. And I did not plan on covering those in this uh, short lecture. You know, in, the, in the ischemic, though, you know, Dr. House mentioned all these already, so uh, just wanted to make sure that um, I didn't know he was covering this uh, topic. I just wanted to make sure you're aware of those. So ED evaluation. So what are you going to do? you got this 25-year-old uh, graduate student, and he comes into the emergency room, and he's got a painful red hot knee. You know, he's sexually active. Okay. Blood cultures. Tap the knee. What are you going to send the knee for? Good. Crystals. Sure. Okay. And uh, and anything else? Okay, you can get an x-ray. Mm -hmm. How are you going to do that? Yeah, PCR, or you can culture it. How are you going to culture it? Yeah, you need to, you need to culture it in the right medium. So putting it in the regular uh, culture tube isn't going to work for gonorrhea. So you need to basically send two cultures, one on the gonorrhea, chocolate uh, agar, and one, you know, the regular aerobic culture um, bottle. Anything else you're going to culture? Orifices, yeah. So, you know, that person's in the high-risk group for gonorrhea, and so culturing orifices. Um, and then, uh, um, yeah, so I think you guys, you guys are, you're, you're, you're right on for that. So um, let me go back. Then what are you going to do? What are you going to do next? Let's say the gram stain comes back and there's gram-negative intracellular organisms. What's the diagnosis? Yeah, gonorrhea, right? So how are you going to treat this patient? Anybody know? I learned this. I was. I, this was a learning experience for me. 
Yeah, so if you're, if you're, you don't necessarily need a consultation, is, uh, is what the book says. And I've read this before, too, and, uh, when I had this case in the ER, um, you know, in the Pete's pod in the old ER, is, uh, treatment for gonococcal, uh, um, septic joint is, uh, uh, I, uh, you know, one gram IM, Q, seven days, you know, except for seven days. You know, once a day for seven days. And, you know, the problem is, though, are you missing the staff? You know, you have to be really, really sure of the diagnosis. So I think in the, the textbook, and reading Harwood Nuss' textbook, you know, they, they say, oh, this is how you treat uh, gonorrheal, uh, you know, arthritis, and this is how you treat non-gonococcal arthritis. Well, the problem is you better be really sure of the difference because they're very, very different diseases. So I think in our institution, you know, you'd, you'd be consulting orthopedics to really, uh, you know, make sure they're not going to offer any washouts or anything like that. But um, uh, that would be an acceptable treatment. Uh, uh, um, antibiotics, no, no operating room, no washouts. Uh, so you know, in the in the, uh, the work, you know, I think this you know history, of course, in your ED evaluation, you know, look look at you know help, you know, um, work out your differential. Uh, look for those that have uh, acute on chronic disease. That's a worrisome history. Someone has rheumatoid arthritis, and you know, all of a sudden they come in, and one joint really, really hurts. It's probably it could be an infection on top of rheumatoid arthritis. Again, those are the septic sources, the STDs, and, and don't forget ticks. We'll get into that in, this, in, in the next section. And then uh, patients can have a reactive arthritis too. That will be in the polyarthritis lectures. So physical exam. So remember, look for other sources uh, of infection. Look at that skin exam. You know, this patient, this collagen that I mentioned, you're going to do a really, really good skin exam. You know, look for a murmur. Is this endocarditis or something like that? Uh, look for oral ulcers. Uh, examine all joints. It's because they come in and clean of one joint. You should really look at all joints. And, and the, the bad joint is going to have, you know, pain on active and passive movement, not just one or the other. It should be both. So arthrocentesis, uh, um, you know, it's really recommended for all except for those with classic gout, uh, you know, and recurrent gout. First-time diagnosis of gout, you really should tap. Who's going to rely on ESR and CRP? We should have, I wish we had an orthopedics, some orthopedic doctors in the room because I think they have some disagreement on this. Anybody? No comments? Huh? Yeah, and so uh, uh, it turns out testing is not not that good. From a review article, JAMA 2008, you know they looked at uh, you know white blood cell count, ESR, CRP, and you know kind of uh, uh, looking at the this change of pretest probability, uh, you know a little bit, not enough to really affect your your, your pattern. So if you have white count greater than 10,000, 10K, I mean, I don't know, I might have a white count greater than 10,000 right now. Who knows? Uh, your likelihood ratio of having uh, a septic joint is 1.4, not that great. You know, ESR more than 30, uh, 1.3. I mean, it's, these aren't big numbers. And then look at this markedly elevated CRP. You know, markedly greater than 100. I, I don't think I've ever seen that CRP greater than 100. Has anybody? And I, and I, I'm trying to. I was trying to figure out the units were off. Is it 10 per? I don't know. I mean. Okay, so then it would be 10. Okay, so uh, point well taken. So, you know, CRP greater than 10, that's a big number still, right? Likelihood ratio is 1.6. So relying on those numbers is not maybe the best thing to do. 
so interpreting this uh, joint fluid, uh, greater, greater than 50,000 white count, that's, that's the worrisome patient. That's the one that you know, probably has septic arthritis. Uh, the one with those with gonococcal arthritis, you may not see uh, um, a white count that high. Actually, it could be like 900 or something. Um, and those people that are on prior antibiotics, they may affect your uh, your, um, your your tap results. Uh, Gram stains about 80% accurate, so you know high high index of suspicion. Don't necessarily re rely on that alone. Uh, make sure you culture it and use the correct medium. And again, for gonorrhea, you're going to culture all possible sources. Um, so there is the uh, gonococcal treatment, which we, we already talked about. Uh, make sure you treat them with, for chlamydia uh, also. They, you should see clinical improvement for two days. So these people are coming back to either the ER or family practice or internal medicine uh, once you, know, you make this diagnosis. But you know, like again, I said before, you really should make sure you're really firm on the diagnosis before you go down this route. And so I think you would have to have a positive gram stain uh, um, in, in order, in a, you know, really, really good history for it. You want to miss a septic arthritis. Because uh, in the septic arthritis, this patient's going to the operating room, right? And uh, intraarticular antibiotics sounds like a good idea, right? But it turns out it doesn't really help. It makes it worse, maybe. And then uh, crystal-induced arthritis, you know, the gout. Uh, NSAIDs work great for this. Uh, which anyone have a specific NSAID in mind that they like to use for gout? Yeah, indomethacin. Yeah, I, I, I prescribed that before for patients. I think ibuprofen would probably be okay. Uh, there are patients that uh, uh, will come in and they're allergic to NSAIDs, and steroids is a great option for them. Uh, one of the problems with steroids is you may get a rebound gout, so maybe a taper would be a better alternative than the burst. Um, anyone used colchicine before? So that's interesting medication. You don't, you don't, it's like Q one hour until that having diarrhea. It's how you dose it. Uh, it works really well, and uh, that's the only medication I know that I, I wrote for is you take it until you have diarrhea. <laughs> uh, um, but it works great. And then uh, you know colchicine, probenicid. Or actually, that was not, that's not called the same. That's supposed to be allopurinol. Apologize for that. Allopurinol and probenicid, those will actually make a gout attack worse, an acute gout attack. You know, they're preventative medications, but for the acute attack, it's going to make it worse. And then uh, talk about polyarthritis. So you got two or more joints being affected. So we got we got two different types of patients that have come in this way. I mean, and one they have known rheumatologic disease. Okay, and this is the big big group that really has the, the, the big arthritis problems. And then, and then you got the other group is sort of have a complication of a previous condition. These are typically gradually in onset when it's the polyarthritis, and you, you may not be able to make the diagnosis in the, in the emergency department. Um, so, um, it may, you know, so it's a little bit more difficult for us, too. So rheumatoid arthritis, we've all seen this before, right? You know, symmetric involves the uh, MCPs, PIPs, Morning stiffness, you know, the hands with ulnar deviation. About 75% of these uh, uh, have uh, a positive rheumatic factor, so don't rely on that alone. I think they're really interesting for someone that has an undiagnosed, not a, a, don't have, doesn't have a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis that comes in with their first time, and you suspect it, and then like you know they have a you know like a two day. Oh my God, my joints are just on fire. I've never had this problem before. 
they, they may have this, like a fulminant attack of rheumatoid arthritis. And you, you, you're, you're, uh, I, I've never seen that the type of patient before, but these are the patients you're going to get a rheumatology consult on. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. They may have some other symptoms too, fever, anorexia, weight loss, uh, and you know, really bad cases, you know, progression of rheumatoid arthritis, lungs and heart can be involved. So, you know, the early, so again, the, the person that does not have the diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis that you're making this diagnosis on, you're really got, you want to get a, uh, a prompt referral, whether in the ED or the next day or next couple days, or you know, if you have Iowa care, maybe in, you know, next week. Uh, I don't know. So maybe probably in the ER if you have Iowa care. The problem, because NSAIDs aren't going to help. Okay, it may help the symptoms. It's not going to help the progression of the disease. And you need the patients need to be on demodulating. Good. That's right. Did you do a room fellowship for emergency medicine? No. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, and these are expensive. I mean, really expensive. And, and I, I, I can tell you that insurance companies don't want to pay for this. And that you probably can't even write for these drugs. That it's got to be written by a rheumatologist for an insurance company to pay for it. And so uh, uh, getting the, the rheumatology consult is going to be key. How many people have gotten have rheumatology consults on the, uh, in the ER? Couple? Good interactions, bad interactions? Okay. Yeah. Actually, off hours, I've never had a problem. They, um, when they're in a busy clinic, they're not too excited about coming down. But but off hours, uh, they they've been coming. They come in and read crystals and see patients, and I never had a problem. So uh, complications. So big one, top of the list, right? Our, this is our domain, our anesthesia, I guess. Uh, airway. So. You got to intubate a rheumatoid arthritis patient. What are you going to do? Okay. C-spine precautions. Yes. So flexing that neck may be uh, very dangerous, to say the least. So intubate these patients. Uh, C-spine precautions. They may show up with other, you know, carpal tunnel type, you know, entrapments and uh, uh, sensor tension tendon ruptures are possible. Uh, again, getting down to this airway problem. This cricoarytenoid joint can be affected too. So they may present with strider, airway edema, and again, the difficult intubation. Uh, and then there are some other systemic problems. Vasculitis can just affect the skin, can affect other organs. Uh, Sjogren syndrome, uh, who knows what that is? Yeah, dry eyes and uh, arthritis. It's, uh, and then uh, episclerolitis, scleritis, so eye involvement. Which one of these is more worrisome? Episcleritis or scleritis? Uh, scleritis. So episcleritis can progress to scleritis. So when, it, when scleritis will actually get the white cells in the chamber, you know, kind of like a uveitis type thing. And so uh, if patients come in with eye symptoms uh, when they have rheumatoid arthritis, you know, don't, uh, you know, an ophthalmology referral is going to be probably needed. And uh, maybe even consult in the ER depending on your comfort level and, and everything else. Uh, next disease, acute rheumatic fever. Who's seen this before? Barash probably has when he did peds. Amy? Yeah, you know, I, I, 
I think I've seen people, older people that had this as kids, but uh, um, you know, it's a disease that with antibiotics and everything else uh, we don't see very often. 75% uh, of pe people complain of arthritis, uh, and these affect the knees, ankles uh, first, and then it progresses to wrists and elbows. Uh, they may have a car associated carditis, which would be a new murmur, uh, throat chest pain, um, cardiomegaly, or CHF. 5% uh, can have chorea, uh, a little bit later finding. 5% um, can have erythema marginatum, similar to like Lyme disease. And you may also see subcutaneous modules. What kind of criteria are you going to use to diagnose acute rheumatic fever? Jones, good. I guess it's really the modified Jones. So you need like one major and two minor, or is it in, in, in or just two major criteria to diagnose this? And, uh, um, and, and if you do diagnose this, you're going to, you know, for the first time, you're going to end up hospitalizing these, these, these patients. In addition to the Jones criteria, you also need to have labs that show recent strep infection. So how, how would you do that? What kind of labs would you get to show a recent strep infection? Yeah, ASO titer. I think it's not like a big send-out. Uh, I tried ordering that once. I got some resistance. You got, you got Epic up? Yeah. I think it was like one of these... Yeah, so, you know, it's one of those things. So you have to, have, you know, if you suspect it, they'll order it. Uh, treatment is important. High-dose or steroids may help. Penicillin. And, and the patients are basically admitted for monitoring. Are they going to develop, you know, is this carditis going to be a problem? Prolonged PR interval, you know, cardiomegaly, CHF, um, they, are they getting worse? Lyme disease. Uh... I always, like, I always like reading about Lyme disease for some reason. Um, so it's caused by the organism Borrelia burgdorferi. What kind of organism is that? Spirochete, right? And then uh, who? And then the deer tick carries the bug, right? And what's the life cycle of the deer tick? Anyone know? It's like a two-year thing, isn't it? They have to. They kind of hang on the deer, and then they kind of go in a dormant state, and then, and so it takes like a two-year cycle to ticker, I think, to actually get you to the disease. Anyone know the difference between the tick on the left and the tick on the right? Now they're both they're both uh, Ixodes ticks, Scapularis ticks. Nope. Good, good. <laughs> Yeah, so it actually takes, I, I thought this was kind of interesting, it takes about 24 to 48 hours uh, for that tick to be on your body to uh, feed. They're not going to feed right away. And so the, the one on the left is probably has a partially fed, and the one on the right is maybe kind of hungry. And there are some other pictures on the Internet, and they show like a really, you know, plump uh, Ixodes ticks that are, you know, apparently in the well-fed group. So, uh, so those ticks, just so you know, they made, made their different appearances. And how big are these ticks? Yeah, teeny tiny. Anyone pull a tick off themselves? Like like this small? Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. When our kids are like two or three, uh, we were my wife was just playing in the backyard, you know, tumbling around, rolling around with them, and and then she was getting ready for bed, and she saw a new freckle on her leg, and she's like, "Oh, I got a new freckle." It was a tick. Same, same. So that that's the history, and and. 
you know, and you're, you're not going to notice it when it's on your back or back of your legs. So, were you on antibiotics when you took the tick off? Anybody? You were? Probably not a bad idea. So, uh, so the rash, this shows up in about 60% of Lyme cases. So just because uh, a person comes in, you know, with a bad joint doesn't, you know, and they, they may have Lyme without the rash. So 40% of you are not going to have the rash. The, the arthritis, this could show up any time from uh, two weeks to two years later. So, you know, there's this uh, subacute to chronic uh, appearance. And it typically affects the large joints, larger joints and uh, uh, most commonly the knee. And then you, you should get an EKG in these pa patients because they may show up with AV block. You guys in Wisconsin bringing down the Lyme disease to Iowa? I don't know. And now they're bringing down your, your uh, people to Iowa for, for uh, education too, huh? <laughs> so, yeah. So Wisconsin, the big hot belt, and you know it's invading Iowa. And, uh, of course, you know, Connecticut is, seems to be like the biggest center of, uh, of, of Lyme disease. Remember uh, Buffalo where I'm from was not in the black category uh, when I was in residency. I don't even know if they were in the red category, but, you know, this disease is kind of spreading. So uh, it's not too long before we're, we're, we're in the black category because, I, I don't know, I, we see about Lyme, what? I don't know, I see like one, two, one or two cases a year. And so uh, I think while the different doctors work here, there's got to be like 30 cases in our ER a summer, I would guess. Yes? No? Probably. And then 10%, uh, you know, they can show up with neurologic symptoms, uh, meningitis, encephalitis, cranial nerve function. When they have cranial ner nerves, how, how are they going to show up when they have a cranial nerve problem? Yeah, Bell's palsy. And uh, is that going to be unilateral or bilateral? Yeah, it can be bilateral, so that would be kind of interesting. And, and uh, how did you work him up? And he was positive? So uh, so if you do a, a tap on these people with Lyme disease, your, your white blood cell count varies. It means it's being 500, 500 to 98,000, so huge range. Uh, CSF, uh, if, you know, interpreting the CSF is, is difficult, uh, and I think, you, you know, you should get a you know, reference for this. E-Medicine has some good articles on that, and I wasn't going to cover all the, 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 the things about um, that and the titers, like who to test and who to treat. Uh, it gets really uh, tricky as far as like ordering uh, the Lyme tests and following the CDC recommendations, and they're changing all the time. So rather than you know kind of going through all of them, I think it's important to know who to order the antibody on, and then you need a confirmation. It's kind of like HIV, you need an antibody test, and then you need a confirmation test. Uh, and so it gets a little tricky. So um, you know, the patient who has solitary typical erythema migrans, don't order like the lab testing. It's not going to help you at all. Just treat them. So you have Lyme disease, uh, treat. Uh, um, it's not going to, you know, the, the pretest probability here is, is too high and the sensitivity test is low. So just, just go ahead and start them. And doxycycline in the early stages is a treatment and those with advanced diseases need ceftriaxone. Uh, Reiter's syndrome. Anyone heard of this? Something like that. It's good. So 
Actually, writer syndrome now is sort of not like the diagnosis. The di diagnosis is reactive arthritis. It's sort of like poo-pooed the diagnosis of writer syndrome in reading about this. Uh, and these are recent updates uh, in 2010 in some uh, you know, rheumatological literature that I was uh, reading on the web from eMedicine and, and a few other places. And so uh, uh, patients may, so that, that, like, as Dave mentioned, uh, you know, can't pee, urethritis. And this may be from an STD or not. So it could be like a, you know, a venereal infection or it could be some other infection that's causing urethritis. That's like a post-inflammatory like post urethritis. And same thing with arthritis and chondritis. Those people that have HLA, B27, HIV are higher risk, and they're you know, triggered by enteric and uh, urogenital infections. So, um, you know, um, and, and they typically show up one to three weeks later. Anyone know a famous person that had uh, uh, um, famous explorer that had reactive arthritis? Christopher Columbus. He, so he had a dysentery, uh, you know, it's, uh, so he had an enteric infection. And then a few weeks later, he had fever, arthritis, eye hemorrhage, and pain. And it actually got so bad, his arthritis, he couldn't walk any longer and ended up being bed-bound at the end of his life. You, you may have other findings. So this one on the left is called circumferential balantitis or something like that. And uh, so actually, there's no primary infection on that guy's penis. It's, it's a re all reactive problem. Same thing with this, this foot, this, these plaques on this guy's foot, it's all reactive. And this tongue, you know, this reactive sloughing of the tongue is all from just a, you know, a viral infection. Who's seen the tongue finding before? Nobody? I see this all the time. Like people that are like have viral infections, they have like a little sloughing of the tongue. I don't know. Uh, so it's just like a reactive phenomenon, not the primary problem. So treatment for reactive arthritis is basically supportive. How about serum sickness? Anyone, anyone knowing about serum sickness? Sounds so old school, doesn't it? Serum sickness? I don't know. My dad carries this diagnosis of uh, serum sickness because he got streptokinase uh, for an MI like in 1980 because that came from antibodies or something. So true serum sickness is actually pretty rare. You have to get it from like you know some sort of serum that's like not human, you know, like horse serum or bovine serum or something like that. And there's very few drugs made that way now. But you can get like serum sickness-like reactions from antibiotics, penicillin, allopurinol type of thing. And so the person that, the person that you're going to see with the serum sickness-like illness is the person that's got like, say, strep throat, and then antibiotics for like six days, and now all of a sudden they got this rash. And it looks like an allergic reaction. And it's, it's in, you know, in, in, in a sense it is. It's, like, it's kind of like serum sickness-like reaction. And so basically, you treat it like allergic reaction. You avoid the fending agent, and you, you take away the stimulus. And that's all I have. Any questions? All right, thanks. Oh, and everybody that attended the CPC last night got three hours of resident conference credit. I'm not sure if you knew that. Just make sure to advertise that ahead of time.